Jerry Whelan, you're an Irish Jesuit, you're based in Rome and you teach in the Gregorian there and have often spoken to us about the politics and things that are happening there in the Vatican and in Rome. Breaking story about Pope Benedict Emeritus asking Pope Francis not to go there in terms of the possibility of ordaining married men. What's the significance of this and how has it been viewed in Rome? Hi, Pat. Lovely to talk to you again. As usual, I have to make a couple of caveats that uh, you know, I'm not that expert. Um, there are journalists in Rome even that, that would be very, very informed in this area. But there are some things that are obvious to all of us here that, in my own opinion, this is unfortunate uh, because inevitably anything Pope Benedict writes has a certain ambiguity about is it from the magisterium or is it not? In theory, it, it's just, he's just, he just writes as a private citizen, so to speak. But uh, in practice, there is this confusion of messages. It seems uh, to be very carefully timed, even, this publication, because during 2020, we expect Pope Francis to publish what they call his apostolic exhortation, his letter as a result of the last synod. Now, the synod was on the Amazon, synod of bishops on the Amazon, and as many people know, questions of celibacy came up during that synod, and there was a certain attitude in the final document of the synod, leaving an open door to Pope Francis to treat some very specific issue. For example, that they already have married deacons in the Amazon, as we do everywhere else in the mm -hmm. Catholic Church. These would, of course, be indigenous people in their villages, these men that have gone through this marriage of a certain age. Uh, the possibility of ordaining them priest uh, was discussed in an open way in the Synod. And there is some question of whether uh, Pope Francis might uh, go forward with some very conditioned, regionally restricted um, proposals in that way because of the special needs of the people of the Amazon and the indigenous cultures that are there. So the timing seems all too pointed in that respect and it is regrettable and I think yeah, a number of prominent people are already noting this. Do you think it will have a notable effect? I mean the sense was that when Pope Benedict retired that he was withdrawing completely in order to allow Pope Francis to put his own stamp on the pontificacy and the film that everybody is talking about, The Two Popes, one felt, whilst obviously there was artistic licence, that certainly that seemed to be the case. Is this a real blow in that regard? Somewhat, yes, uh, I think. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate the significance. And in fact, this is not the first time that uh, Pope Benedict has spoken a bit more than one would have expected uh, on some issues. A word on the film, by the way, I thought it was excellent. I think many people did. For those of us that have read the biography of Pope Francis fairly closely and the biography of Benedict, you know, it's an act of fiction, but there's a truth, there's an accuracy in it that is valuable, I believe. If you remember at the beginning of the movie, the sharp difference of opinion on so many things between Benedict and Bergoglio of the time, that's accurate enough, really. And then the generous handing over by Pope Benedict well, to, to resign with the possibility of Pope Francis being elected. There's a sort of artistic accuracy to that, I think. You know, the artistic liberty they're taking, but nevertheless, there's a truce to that. Something highly admirable on the part of Pope Benedict, that he found consolation in prayer by letting go of his control and the control by his ideas over the church. So that uh, in the aftermath, 
that there, there have been some ambiguities in just how much he's letting go, I'm afraid, is uh, part of the way I interpret what, what's happening. Yeah, because it is a significant intervention in that book. It's quite strong uh, by all reports, a really strong appeal, don't do this. It's public, it's very public, and it's in writing and cast in, in stone in that way. So doesn't make it easy for Pope Francis to maybe do what he feels he wants to do in that exhortation and what people, I think, many people were hopeful he would do. Well, we'll see. Uh, he is masterful, after all, uh, Pope Francis, in finding ways forward. He's been in conflict all his life, really. He writes in a very impressive way about how to engage with conflict in a way that can neither ignore that it's there nor get obsessed with it, but how to kind of keep your eye on the ball and do what's right and make of conflict, kind of rework some conflict so that it becomes part of a, a resolution at a higher level, is one way he puts things. So we'll see what he does. Just by the way, any move towards celibacy for priests, for the male priests, would be very, very limited, it seems, quite clear. That was the intention of the Synod in the Amazon, that it's, it's a, a response to a particular pastoral challenge and would not immediately be applicable beyond the Amazon, I think, what they were suggesting. But just to note, uh, there were wider questions than just this celibacy thing alone that were indeed controversial that had to do with the whole role of women in ministry in the Amazon uh, to start with. So there are many parishes which are in fact uh, don't have a priest and which women are administering. So some way of rethinking kind of titles of ministry. Uh, so without rethinking the notion of a, a male priesthood, rethinking the kind of kaleidoscope of ministries that are possible in the church in the light of what's actually happening already. So uh, women taking responsibility in parish communities. It's also, there's a, a connection with culture in those indigenous cultures. It, uh, a number of them, if I understand correctly, are matriarchal cultures and uh, the importance of the, the role of women in, in taking leadership is actually normal in, in a number of those cultures. We didn't see with the apostolic exhortation that comes out, but I would look forward to Pope Francis still finding a way of being creative, even if the ante has been upped before he even publishes the document. And of course there are other things happening as well, Jerry. I mean, the appointment of Cardinal Taglia is significant also. Yes, let me explain that a little bit. Uh, this for me is a, a marvellous example of the creativity of Pope Francis of negotiating his way through what can seem like conflictual situations and finding some sort of creative solution. So this has to do with a document that has not yet been published regarding further reform of the Vatican, of the, um, the Holy See. Um, the, it has actually been leaked already, kind of on purpose, so we all know most of what's in the document. One of these big changes includes creating a new big dicastery. It's like the Ministry for they call it a dicastery, for evangelization, which will be more important than the CDF, than the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the kind of watchdog for orthodoxy, theological orthodoxy in the church. The backstory here a bit is that there is a huge congregation in the church, dicastery already, called Propaganda Fide. The history is from the uh, 1700s. It was created for sending missionaries to the mission lands of, of you know, the newly discovered lands or the global south. It was a kind of separate organization from the organization of the stable, the settled church in Europe, North America, and, and even Latin America. So it had to do with Africa and Asia primarily. Now, that 
there is still in the Vatican. But meanwhile, the churches, not least in Africa, for example, and in some parts of Asia, have become very stable and self-sufficient and should be regarded as ordinary churches on par with the others. And indeed, they have more vocations often. Now, a second point was that a, a dicastery had been created, or a congregation council, uh, by Pope Benedict for new evangelization. Now, Pope Benedict had a way of talking about new evangelization that seemed to emphasize especially re-evangelizing Europe, for example, secular Europe and North America. And the tone of the way Pope Francis talks about evangelization is somewhat different. So what to do with this Council for New Evangelization and this big uh, propaganda fide um, organization seem to be a problem within Vatican reform. Now, another point regarding propaganda fide is that they have more money than the rest of the Vatican, <laughs> especially in, in property investments. And the point, of course, is that they need to be sending money to support dioceses in the very poor countries. So it's a very important, necessary function there. However, the question of accountability is a problematic question for the propaganda fide. A lot of us heard about the financial reforms in the Vatican, but they usually did not get as far as propaganda fide. It was a bit of a, a fief in its own right. So what has Pope Francis done? Instead of kind of muscling in and telling them what not to do in these different dicasteries, he has kind of promoted them out of recognition by creating this new super dicastery for evangelization. But this dicastery should be connected to the evangelization that is going on in every church in the world. So immediately this talking about the Global South point is excluded as a problem because he's changed the question to saying that we're all supposed to be involved in evangelization and therefore that should be the first work of what the Vatican is concerned with. Secondary issues would be theological orthodoxy, etc., which would still continue. And then in addition, he appoints Cardinal Tagbe from the Philippines to be head of this new extra important dicastery. Now, Cardinal Tagbe is considered a progressive cardinal, mm-hmm. so in, and very much in tune with Pope Francis. So, you see what I'm getting at? It, yes. It's not that he's shut down the propaganda feed or anything resembling that. He's actually changed its definition, in many ways promoted it, as well as the Council for New Evangelization. But he's appointed an unthinkable leader for this new dicastery, unthinkable in the sense of it, not a person you would have thought of for propaganda feeding. For me, it's important to note there's still creative forward movements happening with Pope Francis on the whole question of reform of the Vatican Curia, wider reform in the Church, and that there is resistance to him, there is no doubt. But mm-hmm. it's still a fascinating ball game, so to speak. <laughs> there's every possibility, I think, of Pope Francis making significant changes that will last a long time after he's gone. That's good news to end on. And uh, Jerry, I hope the weather is more clement for you in Rome than it is here. If our listeners listening to this will... You've been having storms. It's beautiful, I'm afraid. And I'm sorry to tell you, in Rome, there's sunshine. You can take lovely walks in the middle of the day. Well, the howling wind is what they'll be hearing in the background here. But I hope they'll forgive us because it was well worth getting your take on those stories from Rome and to end on a note of hope for 2020. Thanks very much indeed for talking to us, Jerry Whelan.